Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today, for the freedom we have to be here, for a place, Father, for food that we've had already this morning, uh, for all that you've been doing in our lives, all of us. You've been working. You're always working. Father, we thank you for that, and we thank you that we can trust you. We ask you for your word to, to remind us today that you do love us and that you want to have a personal relationship with us. But there are some things that need to be thought through from our perspective. Father, we thank you that we can trust you in every capacity. Be with these families that have lost loved ones. And, Father, just strengthen them. Draw them to yourself. Uh, make yourself more clear than ever to them uh, because it is difficult when you lose someone that you love. But, Father, we know we can trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Miss Peggy Lee made it home. I forgot to say that. Uh, so just keep praying for her and Yvonne. Uh, and thank the Lord for what he's done already in her life. If, you're, uh, if you have looked already at the study this week, it is about uh, God's personal relationship with us, a love relationship with us. But in the handout is back there. But what I'm going to have in my notes are, are just going to try to complement that. Uh, you said, well, that doesn't even look like that. Well, it's, it's dealing with the issue of God and God's love, but it's never is it going to be a copy of what you already have. You know, that would be redundant. So we're never going to do that. Uh, so we're going to try and just add some as we're talking about the love of God and how that works itself out. Uh, so if whenever you start reading, and please make sure you read that, all right? If you go into your small group, make sure you read that. Uh, don't just say, well, I'm just going to listen to you. I'm not going to read that. It's not the same. Uh, and if you go to your small group, you're going to talk about some of the questions that are on the back of that page. So make sure you read that first. And then Danny will put this up. And if you want to read through this again, <coughs> uh, that might be a, just an add-on. But don't replace that just with mine because mine is a, a compliment. I hope it's a compliment, all right? And that is this, the God who loves. Uh, you know, that's what that is, that God is love. And this is it. And this is what you find. If you find anybody today who believes there is a God, they will always describe him as, oh, he's a God of love. If they believe in God, that's what they believe. They're going to believe that. They won't necessarily believe in wrath, and they won't necessarily believe in punishment, but they'll say, oh, yeah, God is a God of love, and he is a God of love, but he's so much more than that. And a lot of times people get confused on that whole issue of how the God who loves us, how does that work out with all of his other attributes? And that's what we're going to try to look at quickly today, and I'm going to have to hurry. And so we're going to just go over a couple of things real quick. But Danny will put this up. There'll be a lot more on here than, than I'll get to talk about. <clears throat> but we're just going to maybe have some things to help us think. There's one thing that our world thinks to know about God, but if our world believes in God, they believe he's a loving God. If God, oh yeah, God's a love, and that's why a lot of people, that's all they ever talk about. You know, they don't talk about God's wrath. They don't talk about punishment. They don't talk about any of that stuff. Oh, because God is a God of love, and he is. It's not always been the case. You know, you look at history. You look in the Old Testament. You know, they saw the gods as kind of, uh, uh, how would you say it, uh, fragile and uh, particular. So they had to appease the God so the God would take care of them and wouldn't hurt them. So it hasn't always been that God just was a God of love. You know, according to where you're going in the Old Testament, those gods that you would pray to or even in Greek culture, if you're taking a trip, you're going to pray to this God because you want a safe trip. You're trying to appease him. You're trying to take care of him. So they didn't always see God as a God of love. That's why you try to do something, because you want to win his favor. Sometimes in history, the Christian church <coughs> has focused so much on God's wrath that they just kind of didn't 
deal with uh, God's love. You know, we kind of do that. We kind of err on the side of because the way charismatics handle things, we kind of uh, stay away from it because we don't want anybody to associate that's the way we think. So we overcompensate, and that's exactly what happens. Even now, uh, people do that. Or it's sovereignty or it's homeless. They deal with those themes, but how does these things, all of God's attributes and love, how do they work itself out? Uh, and that's what we're going to do quickly today is just look through some of it. He did not, I mean, his love just did not receive a lot of attention in church history. If, I mean, that's just unfortunate, and that's it. But if they believe in God today, oh, God is a God of love. But they don't talk about wrath. They don't talk about consequences. They don't talk about any of that stuff. Yet being comfortable with the notion of the love of God has been accompanied by some of notions that are not biblical. And that's what we're going to look at quickly, too, if we keep hurrying, all right? Occasionally, you'll hear this. <clears throat> And this is what they'll say. Oh, these Christians, I don't like Christians. You know, I love God and I love Jesus. But, you know, if they would just act like Jesus and wouldn't be so judgmental, you know, I'll be fine. And that's kind of what they say. They said, okay, love is God and God's not judgmental. So if Christians try to say, you know, this is wrong, then they're judgmental. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. But I still love God. And so if, if they would just act like Jesus, everything would be all right. That's not exactly biblical either. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. We just went through this in Matthew chapter 7, all right? And what did Jesus say about that? He just simply said, do not have a critical spirit. He did not say, don't look at things and say, this is right, this is wrong. You know, he goes down to the end of this thing and he says, what? Do not throw your pearls before swine. Who's the swine? You're going to start judging them when you call them somebody a swine right? So Jesus is judgmental in the fact that he says, okay, this is this, don't do this. So Jesus never says, don't be judgmental about what is right and wrong. He just says, don't be so critical about things. And we went through that in the whole thing. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But the assumption about the nature and the love, you see, oh, well, if you're Jesus and you're like Jesus, you won't be judgmental. He was very judgmental in the right time, in the right place. And that's exactly what now it's everybody gets to do whatever they want to do, and you don't have the right to tell me what I'm doing is wrong because you're being judgmental. And if you tell me what I'm doing is wrong, Jesus was judgmental. The Old Testament is judgmental, as we're going to see in just a minute. How his love is shown out. That's what it is. God help us. A lot of times Christians are mean. Y'all know some? We all know some. I don't know if they're Christians. They claim to be, but they sure are mean. God help us. And a lot of times we send out a bad message because of that. But that doesn't. But that's not what Jesus is. He is absolutely judgmental in some places. Do not judge or you'll be judged. Yes. But when he says that, he says, don't make any moral judgments about things. Don't do this. Don't do that. Old Testament. We're going to have to hurry. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be real fast for a few minutes. Thank you for oiling my chair. It was squeaking bad in the first service. And I just can't hardly be completely still. So thank you, Alan and uh, Kevin, whoever did that for me. I appreciate it. Uh, somebody's wearing out my chair. Why does he give us so many commands about telling the truth if there's not a judgmental attitude about what a lie is? Isn't that right? One of the commandments says, what? Thou shalt not lie. You've got to judge what's the truth and what's a lie. And we're going to see. In the text, Jesus says, don't judge or you'll be judged. He goes on to say this very thing about the swine and judging and doing the right thing. It is more to God's love than just avoiding judgmentalism. But boy, that's where we are now. 
If you tell somebody else they're doing something wrong in our culture today, you're hate. You're talking hate speech. Ain't that right? Woke hate speech. Oh, you can't. Everybody's all right to do their own thing. No. No, it's not all right. Because our culture finds it relatively easy. Oh, God is love. Who's the master at this? Joel Osteen. You don't ever hear him talk about the wrath of God. You don't ever hear him talk about punishment. He just says God is love. What? It's skewed. You know, you need the whole picture, not just one side. Is God a God of love? Absolutely. Is God a God of wrath? Yes. But he doesn't want that. He wants us to have a personal, loving relationship with him. That's what this whole study is about. Now, we've developed notions of God that are uh, spongy. Is that a good word? It doesn't cover the whole spectrum of God, his attributes. How does love fit in those attributes? What, how does that work? Several different things for us to think about quickly. Number one, God is a God of love, the love of God. What does it tell us? It tells us God loved the Son, the Son loved the Father. It's absolutely there. God is a God of love with no question whatsoever. It says that. It tells us equally explicit that the Son loves the Father and has always done what the Father wants because he loves him to please him. Basically, that's, if you really love someone, you want to do things that are good for them, right? Isn't that right? That's exactly what that means. Absolutely. When Jesus goes to the cross, why? Because he wants to be obedient to the Father. That's what he says. I want to do your will, Father. Number two, God's love can refer to <clears throat> he takes care of his creation. We learned that in chapter 7. It says he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. That's his creation. You know, he sends it to take care of what he made. Uh, so equally, bad people can get blessed from it. Good people can get blessed from it. That's just part of it. God's love is, I'm going to take care of my creation. That's exactly what he does. That's it. He sends it on both the just and the unjust, the godly and the ungodly. Number three, sometimes the Bible speaks of God's love in a kind of moral, inviting, commanding, yearning sense. What do you mean? He addresses Israel in the Old Testament. You know, his own people, Israel, man, there were a, a lot of the Old Testament is filled with their disobedience. A lot of it. And look what he does. When they were particularly perverse, <laughs> disobedient, he says, God says, I love you, turn. Is that being judgmental? Turn. Turn. Why do you want to die? Why don't you listen to me? I love you. If you'll turn from the what you're doing, you will not die. The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel says. He's that kind of God. God is a God of love, but we're going to see in just a moment there are some conditions that come with this. It's not just open, oh, well, God is love and just everything goes. No, that's not right. In chapter 18 of Ezekiel, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? God doesn't want anybody to die and go to hell. And we're going to come on number four when he says that selection. Uh, uh, there's a lot of people, Presbyterians, a lot of Calvinists say, oh, yeah, God chose them from before time. They're going to go to hell. That's not what this says. No. He says, what? Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Says the Lord Jehovah, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God doesn't want anybody to die and go to hell. We'll see in John chapter 3 in just a moment. He says, what? So that they can live is why he did what he did. 
But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness, when you start turning from what is right and doing what is wrong, that's all that means, and committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, is he going to live? No. He's going to die. And we're not talking about just a physical death. None of his righteous deeds that he have done shall be remembered in his trespass that he have trespassed, and in his sin that he has sinned, in them he shall die. God said, I don't want that. I'd rather you listen and live. When I tell you not to play in the street, it's for your own good. When he says, thou shalt not, he said, don't hurt yourself. That's what that means. I mean, God's not being mean. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, says the Lord Jehovah. Wherever, turn yourselves and live. What does that mean? God is a God of love. Absolutely. Absolutely. Say unto them, as I live, says the Lord Jehovah, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he that the wicked turn from his way and live. Constantly. That's what he's saying. God is a God of love. Turn, turn, turn. O house of Israel. His own people. Number four, this is it. This one's a little more difficult. <clears throat> and that is it. Sometimes God's love is selective. Well, you just said it. You just said God didn't choose one to go to heaven and one to go to hell. He doesn't. Does he choose things? Yes, he does. A lot of my Presbyterian friends, they always throw this one up. I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. He's talking about two nations. You're not talking about two people. He didn't say, so I'm going to send you to hell, and Jacob, I'm going to send you to heaven. He's talking about two nations. Get it right now. But he is selective. Why? He needed a nation. When he called Abram out of the Ur of Chaldees, he was a pagan. He said, but I need somebody to start that nation. He called Abram, and Abram listened. He responded, and God counted to him unrighteousness. How does this work? In 7 and 10 of Deuteronomy, God raises this question about Israel. Wait a minute. Now, I chose you, Israel. Did I choose you because you're so good? And then he goes with a whole list of things. Did you do this and you do this? And the question to all of them was no. There is nothing in you that gives me the reason to choose you, Israel, just like me, just like you. There's nothing in us other than God's love. Why God should save us. Nothing. That's what he tells him. So is God selective? Yes, he is. But now let's work on that a little bit. This verse is one of them. In John, you remember John, <clears throat> Jesus has been talking to the Jews, and he's getting real, real serious, and he's talking about uh, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and, and they're so far off track. They said, how do we do that? We're not supposed to do that. And he's not talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Uh, and so they start griping and murmuring, and so that's the context of this verse. And Jesus answered. He says, why are you murmuring among yourselves? Like, you talking about it, you going to figure this thing out? That's what he says, right? No man can come to me. You can't sit down and discuss enough that it's going to make your heart change the way you're going to come to me. No man can come to me except him that draws, that Father who draws me, them to me. You say, well, there's the choosing right there. Yeah, it is. But you got to qualify, you know. And I will raise him up at the last day. There's, there's two things going on here, a comfort <laughs> and also some, uh, some assurance. What is that? As it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God, and everyone that hath heard of the Father 
and have learned comes to me. There's a lot of that drawing right there. Does God just sit you upside the wall and say, you go to heaven, you go to hell? That's not what this says. He says the, the word is there through the prophets, then through Jesus himself. You listen to it because Jesus said some of them hear and they never get it. They hear, but they don't hear. They hear and they don't respond. He said if they're paying attention and they listen, they will come to me because God uses that to draw them. Yeah. What does that mean? The grumbling was not only insulting, but it's dangerous. Why? Because they're presupposing that the divine revelation can be figured out by them. <laughs> Boy, there's a lot of people. We think we got a corner on it, don't we? Man, hearing this last week, I see all kind of people on, on the Internet. They say, God gave me this word about all this stuff. I said, really? What you're saying does not coincide with what the Scripture says. I'm going to go with the Scripture. Oh, God told me this. No, I don't think so. Why? Because it doesn't match. You know, nobody knows what's going to go on over there. Is this the last war? There's a lot of stuff got to happen before this is the last one. It could be leading up to the last one. So that's why you need to be ready. Who knows? We've never seen anything like this in Israel. Well, I haven't in my lifetime. I'm only 64. Some of you may be older and have seen something like this. They said it's never been that bad since the Holocaust in Israel as it is right now. So probably you haven't seen it either. And to divert the attention away from God's grace alone is the reason. So long as we think we can figure it out, we're not going to go to God. You know, that, that's just the way it is. <clears throat> Jesus claimed that everyone who listens and learns from God will come to him. If you're going to figure it all out on your own, then you're not going to listen to him. You're not going to come to him. So he gives a comfort and a challenge. It is comforting because here it says, anyone who is open to go to God can go to God. You understand what that means? Anyone can be saved. There's people that said, oh, no, 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 they can't be saved. That's not what this says. He said if they listen and they respond, they can be saved. Nobody will be left out if they respond to God. That's what it says. And then the other side is this. It deals with Jesus said, I'm, I'm the authority. I'm the one who's going to raise him up in the last day. He comforts us and also tells us, hey, I'm in charge of this thing. When God gives them to me, I'm the last, I'm the last word on it. That's what he's saying. He has not left himself without a witness. <clears throat> you know what general, general revelation is? General revelation is, is what God does in creation. You look at the stars. You, you look out the trees. You look at all this stuff, and you say, nah, this is not evolution. You know, this, this is impossible. So then you start to say, where did this come from? Okay, so you're starting to respond to a light that God has given also in your conscience, it tells us in Romans, that he's put something in us that is there that just absolutely says there is something else out there. It's according to how you respond to it. So if you respond to that light, then God gives you more revelation because you have to have the particular revelation of understanding what Jesus did or there is no salvation. You cannot get saved by worshiping a tree. You cannot get saved by general revelation. That's why he says, if they hear the prophet's word, if they hear the word from the Father, and they listen to it, because Jesus would be the typology of the Messiah who would come and say, it's here now. Jeremiah talked about it. Ezekiel talked about it. Oh, there's a time coming when the heart's going to change from the inside, and that's what Jesus does. It starts with a general revelation, and then as you respond to that, 
God gives you more light, and then you go toward him. So anyone can do that, but you choose not to. And that's exactly what he says in chapter 5, verse 40. The scriptures have done clearly, but to acknowledge God is partial and finds a fulfillment in the reverence always comes back to Jesus. You have to know who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, or there is no salvation. You cannot be saved any other way. No general revelation saves anyone, okay? There's arguments about that all over the board. But clearly, why would Jesus come if you could be saved by looking up in the sky? You know, I go out there a lot of times when I wake up in the morning early, and I watch where the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper is, and I said, yeah, it's about 430. That's where it is. And there's always planes flying over. I don't know where they're going. They're going to Florida for sure, but they come to the west side of my house, a lot of them. But the other night, you know, I understand, a regular passenger plane runs about, what, 500 miles an hour? Isn't that right? Average? Yeah. Well, if those others that were out there were running 500, this one was running 1,200. I mean, it was, I'm not saying it was UFO. I'm not saying that, but it was a fast plane, okay? You can't look up there and look at the stars and say, oh, yeah, they're going to save me. No. General Revelation does not do that. There has to be a reference point to Jesus. That's why somebody's got to tell people. You can't give them enough health stuff and food to save them. You can give them food and then tell them why you're giving them food. Because what Jesus did in your heart. That's how that works. If that, all you're doing is feeding them, you're not doing it. I mean, you're helping them, but you're not helping them, you know. Because a lot of people now, the social ministry takes over the gospel. They do social ministry, but they don't want to talk about Jesus. Oh, they'll get upset. Well, you're feeding them, right? Hello? You have to have the Jesus reference. It has to be there. Absolutely. All revelation before Jesus came and then outside after Jesus came always points to Jesus. That's where it all is. The Old Testament. Someone is coming. The New Testament, someone has come, and someone is coming again. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. That's why you call it the hymn book, right? It's all about him. That's what it is. In chapter 6 of John, verse 37 and 40, they prove that the drawing, and there's, a, there's some difference of opinion on what this means. They go back to Mark chapter 12. I'm going to make it short, all right? <clears throat> because in Mark chapter 12, he talks about a drawing, but in the context of drawing, what he says is this. When Jesus says, I'll draw all men unto me, actually the word that is used in the context means there is no distinction between a Jew and a Gentile in Mark chapter 12. He said, oh, no, no, it's wide open for anybody. You know, because the Jews thought they were the only ones could be saved. You know, they didn't have anything to do with Gentiles. They did, Gentiles were off, the, they were off the scope. And Jesus said, oh, no, no distinction. Jew or Gentile, anybody can be saved. So you have that going on with the verse of, in the word draw. And then you come back to verse uh, 44 in Mark, chap, Mark, Mark, John chapter 6, and you see how it actually, absolutely is different. Why? <clears throat> and the reason is this. If there is no difference... Why would he negate the fact in verse 44 when he says, because unless they come, this is going to happen? If there was no difference, why does he put in a negative? You'll read it when you get home and you'll see what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm just trying to hurry up a little bit. The emphasis is on the responsibility of people to come to Jesus, and then Jesus can actually criticize them when they don't. 
Look at this verse, verse 40. In the rest of that, he says, and you will not come to me that you may have life, responsibility. He's laying it out there. He says, this is where it goes. They hear the word of the prophet and they respond to it. But you said, oh, no, no, we're not going to do that. So you don't come to me. It's, there's always a human responsibility. God does everything he needs to do to bring us to the point, And then we decide. But God loves us. But it's just not the way it's all displayed this day and time. Absolutely. He explains what kind of drawing that the Father is talking about in verse 44 compared to Mark chapter 12, verse 32, and what he says in verse 37. When he compels belief, it's not, we're going to beat you over the head. It's like he compels you like he's a, like a, a lover woes somebody they love. It's not, you come to me or I'm going to beat you. <laughs> no, that's not what it is. He comes as someone who is wooing you. That's the drawing that he's talking about. It is by insight, by teaching, by illumination planted within the individual in fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. It's in Jeremiah. It's in Ezekiel. Isaiah talks about it. And this is what it says. All will be taught by God. When Jesus came, everything changed. You know, all of it was just external on the outside. And now Jesus comes and he moves it all in the inside. And he's changing the whole process of how people can respond by the Holy Spirit. All the things that you see happening. He says, all your sons will be taught by the Lord. You don't have to go to a prophet anymore. You don't have to uh, let somebody teach you everything. Since Jesus come, everything's going to unfold in a different way. And that's exactly what it is. And great will be your children's peace. You know, some of my Calvinistic friends, they say, oh, that means you don't have Sunday school. And you don't do evangelism. You're just going to have it in your heart if you're one of the chosen. That's not what it means. But that's what they preach. It's not, it's not consistent with the rest of the Scripture. What, how many times have we already seen? God's not willing that the wicked should perish. He's doing everything he can to keep somebody from being uh, condemned. That's what he's doing. It's applied topologically. Jesus is a type. All that was in the Old Testament was a type. The Messianic community, Jesus, the Messiah, changed everything. As to how we respond, how we communicate, how we understand, all of it. And the dawning of the saving reign of God are topological. It's a type. You know, the Bible's full of types. Sometimes we get messed up because we don't understand. He said, this is a type of Christ, and this is this. this it's type. It's to help you understand. Of the restoration of Jerusalem after Babylonian exile. That's when he's talking about it. But he said, this is going to come down later on. It's a type of it. That's what it means. The need for internal illumination. What did Jesus say? I'm going away. So the Holy Spirit can come and what? Enlighten you. Teach you. Help you understand in a way that was not possible in the Old Testament. All they had was externals. But they had enough to be saved. Of course, it was by blood sacrifice, right? Aren't you glad we don't do that? Some of you would never be saved if you had to kill your own animal. Or if you had to have an animal that you raised be killed. You know, People say, how can you eat your own chickens? It's not that complicated. <laughs> right? I remember sometimes, Mary, if you know, we started with her with chickens young because I wanted to see how things work. You learn a lot about that. They die. They live. Things happen. You can't fix it. Okay? You, you never take chickens to the vet. Okay? You know that, right? You just threw money away. 
They have no clue. Well, anyway, I had barbecued one while her and her mom was going, and she came back, and she helped me skin the thing. We killed it that morning, and I put it on the grill and cooked it. Came back, and she started eating. She said, which one is this? And I told her, she said, man, it is good. <laughs> oh, I would never do that. Why? You helping somebody understand how the whole process works? That's exactly what's going on. It's illumination. Jesus clarified some things for us that wasn't that way in the Old Testament. But they did have enough to be saved by. You understand that, right? It was the blood of the sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. He looks forward to a new covenant when God will put his law in the minds of the people and write it on the hearts. That's what Jeremiah's talking about. And they use this and say, they've told me personally, oh, that means there's no, you don't go to Sunday school and you don't teach anybody because if you're one of them, God's just going to put it in your heart. That's not what it means. That ain't even close to what it means. No. Somebody's got to understand. And sometimes somebody else has got to explain it to them. God promises a new heart. And it came through the Messiah. Everything changed with Jesus, you know, and the way things were done. His prayer word discourse, what he said? He's going to send the Holy Spirit as a teacher. Why? Because we got to be illuminated. We got to understand this is the way it goes. This is the way it is. Now we have to hurry. Number five, once God is in connection with his own people, that usually means he enters into a covenant with us. You know, the Old Testament's full of covenants. All that is is a contract. He enters into a contract with this person. I'm going to do this. You do this. I know what a contract is. Hello? When you trust Jesus, you enter into a contract with him. He expects something from you. You know that, right? Oh, well, God just loves me and I can live any way I want to. No. No. You got a contract. You committed to Christ. Relationship with him. A per personal relationship. That's what he wants. Then his love is often presented as conditional. What do you mean? God loves everybody the same. No, he doesn't. Boy, that's the going thing today. Oh, everybody, God just loves everybody the same, and he's so loving and forgiving. You can live like hell if you want to, and he's still not going to do anything. No. <laughs> no. Quickly. Jesus' half-brother Jude, look what he says. Keep yourself. That means you. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. Keep yourselves in God's love. What does that mean? You cannot keep yourself there. What about it, moms and dads? You told them if they were in by 11, they could use the car again. If they're not, no. Is that conditional? Yeah. Is God conditional? Yeah, he is. Moral conditionality to being loved by God. Oh, I don't. There's a lot of passages in both Old and New Testament that talks about Jesus' love for us, and some of them are based on conditional and obedience. We won't hear that much, do we? <laughs> Unfortunately. Tell me something. The Ten Commandments, were there any conditions for them? If you do this condition, then I will do this. Is that conditional? All ten of them. Oh, well, God's love is not conditional? Yeah, no. Yeah. Oh, God's love is unconditional? Yeah, no. Yeah, and no. Both. 
God shows his love, he says, to a thousand generation of those who love me and what? Keep my commandments. That means obey. <laughs> That's what it says in Exodus. Inevitably, one starts asking, how does all this work itself out together with God's love? Man, you said, you throw an this out and this out. How does this all work together? Christians have been known to advance such cliches as this. Well, God just loves everybody the same. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, there's conditions, qualifications always. There are contexts in which the Bible casts God's love as a moral. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's everybody. Okay? He does. He loves everybody the same in that sense. Does it, he doesn't say, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to let it rain on Bucky's field over here, but Terry's field, I'm not going to let it rain on him. Now, sometimes we think that because it rains right up to our fence and won't rain anywhere else. Isn't that right? Y'all been there before? Yeah. Well, God said, no, that's not the way it works. That's just how it happened this time. In that context, he loves everybody just the same. But there are other contexts where absolutely God is said to have a conditional love depending on our obedience. Are we doing what he said? And still others grounded in God's own sovereign choice. We just saw that one already. There are some things that we just really can't explain. We just know it's there. God does not love everybody just the same. He doesn't. A love, it depends on our obedience. Look at this quickly, and please write this down. There's nothing you can do anymore to make God love you anymore. You understand that? Well, I'm going to do this so God will love me more. No. God loves you as much as he could ever love you, or he would not allow Jesus to die on the cross for you. You got that? You can't do enough to make God love you more. Okay? Well, wait a minute. That's in contradiction to what you said that is conditional. No, it's not. In some contexts, it's gloriously and absolutely true because at the end of the day, you cannot earn God's love. You can't. You have to understand it. God loves, period. That's, that's how it starts. And Jesus gives us an explanation of that, and he calls it from the Old Testament when he's talking with these people in John chapter 6, the ones who are griping and complaining. You remember what he says? He goes back and he says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man himself must be lifted up. Now, remember in Numbers chapter 14 and 22? You remember what happens there, right? They're, they're mumbling. I mean, they're griping and complaining and not obeying God. So God sends fiery serpents upon them, and they are dying like flies. I mean. And then finally God says, uh, Moses goes to God and says, we have sinned. Whoa. You mean they were dying because they were sinning? Bingo. Right. So when Moses went to God, God said, this is what I want you to do. Go out there and take brass. Brass was a symbol of judgment in the Old Testament. Make a serpent. Boy, is, is this a picture of Jesus? The thing that kills them is going to save them. The thing that judges people is their Savior. That's what it says. He says, Make a serpent out of brass. Now, if, if you could put yourself in a wait a minute, do you want me to go look at something that's killing all of us? Oh, does that sound reasonable? And he says, tell them when they look at it. Is that conditional? Oh, no, you can just stay in your tent. God's just going to do it all. No, no, no. If they have enough faith to go outside of their tent and look at the serpent of brass, they'll be healed. 
That's what Jesus said. If you have enough faith to trust me, then you can be saved. God's love. Is it conditional? Yeah, it is. It's conditional. You can't earn it, but it's conditional. You know, that's the way it is. We don't hear that much. And that's exactly what he does there. This is the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, what? Is that conditional? Yes. Only the believers. Only those who hear. Only those who listen and pay attention and have faith. They're the only ones. Shall not perish but have everlasting life. But for God so loved. For God did not send his son until the world condemned the world. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He doesn't. But they're going to if they choose not to respond. But to save the world through him. That's what it says. Whoever believes in him, there's that condition again. Oh, it's conditional. Whoever believes is not condemned. But he who believes not is condemned already. Why? Because they have not believed in the name of the Son of God. It's conditional. I want to jump down to the end because we got to quit. And that is one of the main things. It blows my mind why in the world God would love you. But more why he would love me. Because I know me. I remember, <laughs> I remember John, uh, George Whitfield. Uh, he was a Calvinist, but you know, he did evangelism. Because he said, I don't know who God's going to save. He was a Calvinist, though. But at one point, uh, uh, Wesley and them were putting down on him pretty bad, John Wesley and them. And uh, some people came to him. He said, what do you think about that? He said, I'm not really concerned about that. I know a whole lot, lot worse things about me than the Wesleys know about me. I'm not worrying about what they think. I'm just worrying about what God does. Who cares what somebody else thinks, basically? It's amazing that God would love anybody, you know? On our best day, what do we do? Our worst. <laughs> you know, ain't there a song about that? On my best day, I'm something other, right? I'm a pagan, selfish, on my best day. <laughs> There's one more heading I think I left up here. And boy, this is one of the things we have today is, well, God should love us. Look how good we are. That's the good thing for a secular psychologist. You know, I, I was telling uh, someone at our small group meeting the other night, right after Debbie and I moved to Dallas, we went to a church in North Dallas who was the cutting-edge church at the time, and we hadn't settled in a church yet, but we just went up there to visit that Sunday, and, and this was the guy's message. You're not as bad as you think you are. I said, uh-oh, and it went downhill from there. And it wasn't too long that... Uh, he left the church because he was unfaithful and all kind of crazy stuff. That's it. You're not bad. And that's what, the God, that's what the word is today about a lot of secular psychologists. Oh, God should love you. You're a pretty good chap. We're entitled, right? We're entitled to a new car. We're entitled to a four-bedroom house on our first marriage. How many of y'all lived in a mobile home in your first days or now? Nothing wrong with a mobile home. They're bad for rats, but... Don't put out poison. They die in the furnace. Hey, don't do that. You set a trap. Get him out of the house because they stink, especially when the heat's on. We live right next to a 50-acre field. When you harvest everything, every rat comes to the trailer. Hey, it's a battle, still a battle. 
For God so loved the world. What is he saying? Oh, he's not talking about the, the green earth. He's talking about the bad people in the world. That's what John's talking about. He's talking about the self-centered, self-focused, worldly people. He died for them. He died for the unlovable. And he wants to have a personal relationship with us. I want to jump to the very, very end because there's a quote here from, bless his heart, an Episcopal pastor. And uh, let's see. Where is it? Did I put it in here? I thought I did. Good night. How many more is it? Oh, yeah. How do you know God loves us? Jesus died for us. How many of you with children are going to let your child die for somebody else who is ungodly? Anybody? The measure of God's love for us is Jesus. Always. Where is that thing? Where is it? Hurry, hurry. <laughs> Did I not put it in there? This will blow your mind. Uh, well. <laughs> well, maybe I'm not going to read it to you then. How about that? Oh, here it is. Retired Episcopal Bishop. No offense to Episcopals, but by and large, they're lefties. You know, by and large, they are liberal. Eh? I mean, you look at their doctrine, they're liberal. Okay? Just to be honest. This is what he said a few years ago. What does the cross mean? How is it to be understood? Clearly the old pattern. Seeing the cross as a place where the price of the fall was paid is inappropriate. This is where we are today. Now, he wrote this quite a few years ago, but this is exactly where the church in America is today, by and large. Aside from encouraging guilt, well, my goodness, your mom and daddy's fault. Ain't your fault. Or your society's fault. Ain't your fault. Justifying the need for divine punishment that has endured with a relentless tenacity through the centuries. The traditional understanding of the cross of Christ has become inoperative. On every level. We don't want the cross. Joel Osteen don't talk about the cross. Why? This. This is the same thing. I mean, that's everywhere. Constant gratitude, which the story of the cross seems to encourage, creates only weakness, childlessness, and dependency. <laughs> and that's what we have. God loves us and wants to have a personal relationship with us. Regardless of what you have, you don't have anything that would make him want you. He just wants you. But some conditions come with that. Let's pray. It is beyond our comprehension why you love us. Why you would look down the quarters of time before Adam and Eve ever sinned. Knowing what they were going to do, and still you had a plan, a plan to restore fallen mankind to yourself. Lord, thank you for having that love for us. Thank you for being patient with us today. Help us evaluate where we are with you in our personal relationship. You desire to have one. There are some conditions. Father, help us be honest. Help us allow your Holy Spirit to convict us. Help us see what we need to do in our own lives so that we can be more obedient in our personal relationship with you. Thank you for doing everything that was necessary so that we can be in the right place with you now and in eternity. 
For Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen.